So, um, if you've got your Bibles, uh, we can turn to Matthew chapter 9. And uh, I'm going to preach the whole uh, passage of Matthew chapter 9. So, I'm used to about three or four hours that I get to, to talk. <laughs> it's funny, our, our services in, in Thailand, uh, we eat, we... We pray together. We sometimes sing, sometimes we don't. Like it, it's kind of fluid, and and but when we study the Bible, it's just like they just have no concept of the scriptures. So that things that we take for granted um, in the scriptures, we have to explain. Like we have to go back and we have to go. Okay, this is where this concept comes from, and, and it's really interesting, but but really fun. But I'm just kidding. I'm not going to spend three hours with you. <laughs> So let's, I'm, I'm going to read the whole passage so we get a context and a, and a feel of, of what it is, and we're going to focus in on the, on the end of the passage. But in uh, getting into the boat, uh, he crossed over, that's Jesus, and he came to his own city. Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, for your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But when the crowd had been put out, put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and said to them, Do you believe that I am, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them. See that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus, uh, open our minds and our hearts to him. Hear what you have to say to us through your word. Holy Spirit, lead my words. Take out my own thoughts and my own words. And shed your light onto us. Thank you, Jesus. So, before we jump right into it, I'll just share a little quick story. Uh, Winnie the Pooh story. <laughs> so, Winnie the Pooh's walking along the riverbanks, and uh, he looks over and he sees Eeyore. Eeyore, the, the sad donkey. And he's flipped over on his back, his legs are up, and he's cruising down the river. And, clearly in trouble. And Eeyore looks at him with these desperate eyes and Pooh just kind of nonchalantly is like, Eeyore, have you fallen in? <laughs> and Eeyore is like, yeah, silly of me, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, Pooh just kind of overlooks the desperate plea of Eeyore's eyes and uh, he says, uh, you really should have been more careful, shouldn't you? <laughs> and he apologizes and says, yeah. And uh, kind of losing all hope that Pooh Bear is going to save him. And uh, Pooh Bear kind of looks at him and goes, I think you're sinking. And this kind of gives Eeyore a little bit more hope. And uh, do you think you could help me? And so Pooh Bear, still kind of unfazed, just grabs Eeyore and pulls him out of the water. And uh, just not even feeling the depth of desperation of Eeyore, he just simply said, Eeyore says, I'm sorry, apologizes, feels all depressed. And Pooh Bear says, oh, don't mention it. You really should have said something sooner. 
it's a cute little story, and it's kind of funny. And, and uh, but I wonder if, like, if we're act, if if we really look inside, are, are we like who? Are we like who? When we see people sinking, do we point it out? And I know as parents, like, like you're all, you're often like when when a kid does something, you're the first thing is like careful, careful after it happens kind of thing, and oh, I told you you, you should have done this, and da 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 da, and, but I wonder how we, when we see people out there, are we like poo? Are we like that, are we just kind of cavalier, and you know, you're sinking. Yeah, I know I'm sinking, thanks. <laughs> I need some help. And uh, I think we're gonna see like a, a much different motivation from Jesus, a much different attitude than what we see from Pooh. Um, I'm going to jump into verse 9 and 13 just to talk a little bit about the 9 to 13, about the context. And there's this, there's this moment in, in this passage, verse 9 to 13, that has really intrigued me for a long time. And I, as you read it, like, it, it goes so speedily. Like, he met this guy, Matthew, and he said, follow me. Come and follow me. That's it. And Matthew leaves everything and he follows Jesus and I was marveled at that. And I just thought, man, what is motivating his response? What is is what is going on in, in this picture? We don't we don't really have like uh, a picture of what it is. Even in the other gospels, um, we know that his name was Levi prior to that. We know that he was a tax collector. So we know that he's sitting at the booth, but uh, there are some things historically we can draw out from that. And uh, in that time, uh, in the state of Israel, was a Roman-occupied state, so the Romans were in power, but Israel was able to function uh, as a Roman-occupied state. And so uh, a tax collector was one who was collecting taxes for Romans. And so, that was a big deal. They were seen as uh, Roman sympathizers, and in most cases, probably seen as traitors. Um, one commentary put it that when a Jew entered the tax office, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or witness in a court session. That's deep, like, he's disqualified based on his occupation. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. And uh, I think like, now in our day, day and age, it's like, oh, I'm not allowed to go to that church, but that's okay, I'll just go to the next one. And it's not like that. This is, this is a, 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 what do they call it? Like a communal, communal type of, of community a communal type of worldview, and all the synagogues were connected. Like, this is, a, this is a Jewish state. This is Israel. And so he was excommunicated from the synagogue. He couldn't worship God with his people. And in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended to his family. And this is something that's difficult for us as Westerners to understand, that if someone is disgraced, that also their family is, carries the shame of that disgrace. And uh, I think this is really key in understanding what Matthew's motivation is to follow Jesus. Um, 
But there's also another side of things. Uh, Matthew's sacrifice that we see was actually probably greater than the fishermen, right? Peter, James, and John. Um, it was greater because what Peter, James, and John gave up was a very low status, a very uh, not lucrative career, <laughs> you can say. <laughs> they were kind of poor. And, uh, and they really were at that stage in life where there wasn't really a lot of hope for any advancement or anything like that. But, but Matthew was at the place in life where he was making a very lucrative living. Um, he was skimming off the top like it was the custom and, and just making a, a nice little nest egg for himself. Um, but I think what motivated Matthew, because of the, the worldview that they shared, was Jesus' call to Matthew immediately restored his honor. For Jesus to look at him, someone who's been excommunicated, someone who's been pushed out of society, someone who's been looked at as like, oh, the, these are the, this is the riffraff, this is the unforgivable ones, these are the sinners, the tax collectors. And Jesus to look at him and say, come, follow me. Immediately restored his honor. And that, like, of course he did that. Of course he stood up and left. That's not the message that we get today, right? The message that we get today is follow all these principles, make your kingdom in this world, God will help you, and you'll, you'll have a successful life. That's the message that we get, whether it's out in the world or it's even in some modern Christianity is that message, but Matthew felt something and realized, I think, uh, that moment that this is something more. my honor is being restored. So this is really key. And, th and this was Jesus' mission. He was the, his mission was to the reprobate, to the sinner, right? He says, like, I didn't come for the Righteous, I came for the sinner. So, in this moment, so marveling at that 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 moment, God demonstrates His love towards us. Romans chapter five says, right, that while we were still sinners, Romans chapter five verse eight, while we were still sinners, God demonstrated His love for us. And we see this picture: while we were drowning, Jesus jumped in the water and pulled us out. While we were drinking. And this is a, a criticism that Serena and I face a lot. And we talked with Andrew a little bit about this um, this weekend. This, uh, I'm losing time this week sometimes. <laughs> um, but we get a lot of criticism because when we go into bars and, and temples and, and ugly places, uh, a lot of our brothers and sisters. Are, are saying to us, why are you going into those places? Like, aren't you worried? Or, or you're giving a bad testimony to the new believers that you have? And I think we think the opposite. We think, 
These people, they have a great need, and it's as great as ours. Their need's as great as ours. And I really do think that Jesus would be in that, those places. Uh, from, this, from this passage, we can see that Jesus was in these places. You know, the Pharisees uh, asked him a question. They said, why are you eating? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the, this question is, it shows the heart. It shows what is, is in behind uh, the Pharisees do. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And this is the part the Pharisees didn't get. They couldn't wrap their minds around it. The Pharisees were like doctors who really wanted people to get well, but didn't want to be around sick people. <laughs> because there was this idea in their mind, if I would associate with them, I would be infected. And this is, this is the, the issue that we face. Um, and they couldn't be further from the truth. Part of the issue from that culture was to eat with someone was to, to identify with them. We have taken the same loaf. And Paul uses this language a lot in the New Testament. We are, we are taking the same loaf. You know, we're, we're identifying together. We are one body, right? As we take communion, we, we recognize that Jesus broke his body for us and that we are identifying with Jesus. And so the Pharisees are asking, you're going you're gonna to identify yourself with the reprobates. You're going to identify yourself with the, the outcasts of society, the ones who, by our law, are unclean, and we push them out. And Jesus' answer by his action is, absolutely, I am going to identify myself with them. Why? So that they will identify with me. So that they will identify with me. Through my death, resurrection, Jesus, not mine, <laughs> my death and resurrection, uh, that sinners, once outcast from God, outcasts from the, the community, the body, the one loaf, would be brought back in and identify with him. The Pharisees missed this whole thing. They missed it. And from their standpoint, they really thought that they were doing God's will. They really thought. The difference with Jesus is that he would not be infected. But instead, his purity and power causes life and healing and restoration to those around him. Quick illustration. Uh, one of our really close friends is a, a young Thai girl named Nan and came out of Buddhism. It took years uh, to, to even get to the point where she would look at the claims of Christ and search out who this God is that we follow. But when she did and gave her life to Christ, we were, uh, Serena was having a conversation with her and said, I want to go visit some of the prostitutes that are in the inner city 
man, do you want to come with me? And she's like, no, no way. And so he's like, probed her a little bit and like, why? Why, why don't you want me to do that? Um, and then immediately what came up was exactly this thing. If I go and talk to them, somebody will see me and think I'm one of them. And Serena was able to walk her through the, the fact that this is, this is what Jesus did. Is that he identified with sinners so that sinners would identify with him. When she came to that understanding, she was like, okay, I'll go. <laughs> She's kind of like a kid, like it's amazing. Um, and th and this, is, this is the, the picture that Jesus is giving. He's saying, I, I, I brought this, you know, this old wine scheme that you're, you're working from. I'm bringing in new wine. And it's going to burst open this old wine scheme. Because I am upsetting the whole thing. No longer are you going to strive to try to be well and be righteous. But that I am going to bring that righteousness to you through my death and resurrection and my perfect sinless life. And then that, that new wine burst open the wine, old wineskin. Old wineskin can't handle it. Anybody got any questions so far? <laughs> We're all trapping together? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, for context's sake, I also want to look at the three groups of miracles. Uh, verses 1 to 8 talks about the first miracle. And we see it's the paralytic. And uh, in, in Matthew, it's very short. In, in Luke, it's a little longer. It's the same story where they break open the roof and bring the guy in. And, uh, but uh, at this, in this story, uh, Matthew is, is really trying to convey uh, one message. And this is Jesus' power over sin. This is Jesus' authority to forgive sins. And it's part of what Matthew is doing to establish Jesus' Messiahship. Um, he saw the desperation of this man as they brought him in. And he reassured them. He reassured the man. He says, have courage, son. And this is a really intimate phrase. It's, it's some, some translations say, take heart. Uh, some are said, be of good cheer. But it's really a, an intimate phrase that says, uh, I got you. I'm here. Um, he cures the man's primary issue first, which is sin. Right? So she brings in, they bring in this paralytic, lay him on the floor, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Immediately the Pharisees say, you are blasphemed. And, and from their perspective, he was. Because at this point, they didn't know that he was the Messiah sent from God. That he was just some rabbi, some teacher who's, who's on the scene, and now he's forgiving sins. So this is blasphemy. The charge is laid. Alright? So they are positioned in a place that they can, they can take out Jesus at this point because he's crossed the line. Because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus proceeds to heal the man. Pharisees are thinking, yeah, Jesus is a blasphemer. God would never authenticate this healing. Right? That's logical. 
God would never authenticate something that is outside of his, of his uh, will, of out, that is blaspheming against who he is, his name. And so Jesus healing this man, it's right there in the passage, authenticates his Messiahship. It takes uh, the charge of blasphemy right off the table because the man stands up and he says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, rise and walk. So the healing was authentication. The healing was to let them know He is the Messiah. He is here to forgive sin. Um, he's the, the Son of Man. And he uses that term on purpose because they knew who the Son of Man was from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, behold, in the clouds of heaven, there come one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. This is the Messiah. So he says, so that you would know that the Son of Man has given, been given authority to forgive sins. That's spectacular. It's, it's more than just bring your sick and you're dying and you're hurting, but bring the ones who there is no hope forever being restored to the kingdom and, and the relationship and the body and the family of God. And now Jesus is making this possible. The second group of miracles um, happens in verse 18 to 26. And the significance of this is Jesus' power over death. And you think to yourself, well, wait, isn't this a, a healing from sickness? Uh, because this woman, and like I get that he raised the girl from the dead, but this woman, uh, the thing we need to understand is this authority to heal the suffering woman and raise the son's daughter from the dead, from the dead, in both cases, Jesus is restoring life. Why do I say that? Because in that context, uh, we know from an exhaustive study of Leviticus, which is super fun, um, <laughs> that there are a whole bunch of laws given to women involving their womb and blood and, and all that stuff. And that this is unclean and that she would be removed she like during just a normal cycle she must be removed from from the camp and and then ceremonially wash herself so that she could be clean again to come into the and identify with uh, Israel be one again this woman suffered with bleeding for 12 years to her, her life is over, right? It's death. To her, bleeding and being ostracized from the community at all times, being seen as unclean, not being able to come into the synagogues and worship her Lord with her family, that was seen as unclean. That was seen as dead. Like, she would have felt dead, and she was desperate. And just as like, like Matthew says, this this 
ruler comes to him desperate because my daughter is dead. This woman was desperate because her life is over. It's been over for a long time. She has the faith. She touches his garment. Jesus restores her life. Yes, he heals the, the, what's going on inside. Absolutely, he heals the physical part. But the part that we don't see is that he heals her relationships. He heals her worship. He heals her community. All of those things. That's what Jesus does to us. You know, in my life, I've, I've walked paths that were leading to death. And Jesus restored all of that because when you're walking a path, and I'm talking about in sin right now, when you're walking a path that is leading to death, you cut off your relationships. Shame puts you in the dark. You start to, to associate uh, with a community that is like you. And when Jesus comes in and restores that, that symptom, he restores all that is connected to you, your relationships. He restores your honor. He restores your community again and your and oneness with people. And so that's a really exciting picture of that, those, that group, those two miracles together. Jesus has the ability to restore death from death. The third group is uh, in verses 29, 27 to 33. That Jesus has the power of blindness and darkness. Jesus has the authority to restore sight and defeat darkness. There's a, it's a sign to us that spiritual blindness and the darkness uh, is over. That Jesus will go on to expose the darkness and he will go on to bring light, the light of salvation. And this is a, this is a, a proclamation, this, this, these two miracles. He's, he takes out this demon, says, I have power and authority over the dark forces, over those dark entities, over these rebellious ones. And by restoring sight to the blind, through their faith, he's saying, now I'm opening your eyes to see what life is like with Jesus. What life will be like in the new kingdom. At the end of all these miracles, the Pharisees witnessed they had a choice. Because the Pharisees, you notice the Pharisees are there in all of them, right? The Pharisees, they're just like, like gnats. They're just, or like flies. They're just like following him. And uh, they, have, they have a choice. They can humble themselves and receive the Messiah that the scriptures pointed to, that their own scriptures pointed to. Or they could reject him. And they chose to do the latter. They publicly did it. They publicly rejected it. He's, they say in verse 34, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. The Pharisees are putting... Jesus' identity with Satan, with the adversary. Uh, there is no more public rejection than that. 
Jesus has been accused of many things at this point. Blasphemy, low morals, ungodliness, being one with the devil. And then we get to verse 35 to 38. Jesus continued what he was, what he was there to do. His life and his heart had a mandate to bring the good news of the kingdom. As he's doing this work, Matthew records Jesus' response to the crowds. He makes the point of saying that Jesus was moved to compassion. And this is, it's not even an adequate word. There's, there's no real word in the English language to adequately describe this feeling that Jesus had. And in fact, uh, I'll give you two commentators to take. As I was reading this passage, that word just jumped out at me. And I had to look it up, and I had to go to the Blue Letter Bible, because I don't speak Greek, and I had to like <laughs> pull out the, the meaning. And, and it was really interesting, because uh, two commentators said, the first one says, the word which was used for move to compassion, is the strongest word for pity in the Greek language. It describes the compassion that moves a man to the deepest depths of his being. And we were talking with, with Stephanie about this, and she said it's like gut-wrenching compassion. Like, yeah, it's good. Gut-wrenching compassion. And in that time, like, we would say from our heart, from our heart, right, is, is where we would say the deepest part of it. But in that culture, from your bowels is actually the deepest point. Um, and then another commentator said, the original word is a very remarkable one. It's not found in classic Greek. It's not found in the Septuagint. The fact that it was a word coined by the evangelist himself. They did not find one in the whole Greek language that suited their purpose, and then therefore they had to make one. That's incredible. That's, that's God. That's our God. Is that our language can't even hold him. And we just have to make stuff up to try to like capture the, the essence of, of even just one emotion. Isn't that incredible? Like, this compassion is what goes beyond the feeling bad for someone. It even goes beyond doing good works for people. People in need. This compassion is what drew Jesus to the cross. This compassion, the cross, was more than just his physical death. The cross was the shame. The cross was the wrath that God placed on, on him. The cross was everything that we were responsible for, Jesus took. That's compassion. That's deep. I'll share one more story with you. Am I doing okay for time? <laughs> um, a young father, James Lee, shot himself in a tavern phone booth. Minutes before he had called a reporter, told him that he had sent the paper an envelope outlining his story. The frantic reporter tried to trace the call, but it was too late. 
When the police arrived, the young man was slumped over with a bullet through his head. In his pockets was a child's crayon drawing, much folded and worn. On it was written, please leave in my coat pocket, I want to have it buried with me. The drawing was signed in childish print by the man's daughter, Shirley, who had died in a fire five months before. The father had been so grief-stricken that he had, he had asked total strangers to attend his daughter's funeral so that she would have a nice service. Because uh, his mother had died two years earlier, or when the child was two. So when he called the reporter just before he took his life, Lee said that all he had in life was gone. And he felt so alone. When we hear a story like that, something happens in our hearts, right? And we think to ourselves, like, man, I would have helped that guy. If I would have just known, I would have helped that guy. And I absolutely believe that every one of you in this room would, would do that. But the problem is, like, like Lee, he didn't have a neon sign on him that said, I'm hurting. He didn't broadcast it. He was hurting in silence. And the reality is, there are people outside of these doors that are hurting and nobody knows. And we know the hurt that they have is so much deeper than the symptoms that is seen in their lives. But I know for a fact there are even some in this room that are hurt. There are some of us that are hurting. And Jesus has compassion. It's just like Eeyore, right? And his legs up. That same picture is what Jesus was talking about when he said they're like sheep without a shepherd. It's like he, one translation says they were cast down. Cast down means that when a sheep falls over, his legs are up, he can't get, he can't get up. He can't get himself righted again. There's nothing he can do. Left in that state, he could die, he could get eaten, uh, die of starvation, what have you. And that's, isn't that where we are? That's not where we are before Jesus comes and writes us. Before Jesus gets in the water and flips us over and pulls us out from, from drowning. What a picture of the heart of a good shepherd. And in verse 37, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful. And God is looking for workers to go out to the harvest. He says, pray to the Lord for workers to go out into the harvest. So in the context of what we see, we see that it's Jesus' compassion in meeting people in all these different forms of hurting, of desperation, of like legs up, of, of feeling like I can't, I can't get anywhere of dishonoring, of being shamed, of being in the dark, of being outcasted. All of these, Jesus' compassion. And he says, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ready. 
And I think if we can learn to posture ourselves in that manner, we will see that there's a huge harvest. One of the, the things that missionaries throw around in Thailand is like, oh, Thais are so hard-hearted because they don't receive the gospel. And I think that is false. They're not more hard-hearted than we are. It's just nobody's listening. Everyone's talking, but no one's listening. Jesus is the answer, but the thing we need to figure out is what is the question? When we find out what the question people are asking is, yeah, we have the answer. Of course we do. But we communicate value. We communicate honor. We communicate everything that Jesus has been communicating through this whole passage. We communicate restoration. And so, if we... Uh, can learn to listen and suspend our judgment, we will have the ability to understand what people are actually dealing with and concerned about in life. That is really hard. I'm, I'm not going to lie. That is hard. For us to suspend our judgment. To, and what I mean by that is to actually take the position that they're in and hold it as legitimate for a moment. An example was like, we deal with Buddhists a lot. What's it like for us to actually suspend our judgment that Buddhism is wrong and Christianity is right and to take a moment and to actually hold what they believe and see what it's like and to ask the questions that they ask. That is really difficult. It takes a lot of humility and Unfortunately, we don't do great at that all the time. But once in a while, through God's Spirit, we're able to, to have that moment, and God does amazing things. So he says, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We should all be praying this. But you have to pray it with an understanding that God's going to say, What about you? What about you? Are you going to be the worker that's going to go out into the harvest? Are you going to be the one who's going to go across the street? You don't have to come to Thailand. You don't have to, you don't have to go to, across the ocean. If God calls you, you do have to do that. But <laughs> if he doesn't call you to that, he's probably calling you to the guy across the street that you've been looking at and you've been going, man... I know I need to talk to him. I know I do. Or maybe that phone call that you need to make. You're like, I destroyed that relationship. I need to go make that right. I need to go and talk to that person. And I need to hold their position for at least a moment so I can experience the compassion that Jesus has for people.